Right, this morning's reading is taken from the book of Joshua, chapter 1, and um, this is found on page 153 of the Bibles in your seat pockets. And this is an interesting one because there's one specific phrase that's said four times in one chapter, and that phrase is, be strong and courageous. So I want you to follow carefully, and when you hear it or when you see it, I want you to fill in the gaps, okay? So, again, uh, Joshua 1, chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be... be For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to to their fathers to give them. Only be being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything according to, that, everything according to all that is written in, in, in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people. Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving to you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, And your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land and your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you commanded them, he shall be put to death. Only... 
This is the Word of God. So we have started this new series called Joshua and Generation Next. We started it last week. First, listening to this crucial moment in Jesus' ministry when he calls his disciples, those who follow him, salt. You are the salt of the earth, Matthew 5.13. He's calling them to a certain kind of life analogous to how salt functioned back in the day. So we defined a salty life last week like this. It's a different sort of life that stops decay in and adds flavor to other lives, leaving them wanting more. And we said that even if you don't consider yourself a Christian, if you have ever wanted to make a difference, if you ever wanted to leave a legacy, if you ever wanted to impact others or live a life that matters, something within you resonates at Jesus' description of salt to a decaying and flavorless world. And the book of Joshua prophetically guides us in discerning how we can not only be salt, but be salt in a time of blessing. See, the next generation that Joshua leads hasn't endured all the trials, the experiences, the obstacles of previous generations. Even still, they get to receive this land flowing with milk and with honey promised long ago which their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents long to see. They inherit the deed, in a sense, without doing any of the work. That's the kind of scenario here. So how do we, as God's people, blessed as we are during the 21st century, living in a place like Cayman, part of a church that has not simply remained alive, but is growing, be salt? to the world around us? That's the big question we asked last week and as we go into this series. So I want, I want to start very practically. On your bulletin, if you were, somewhere on your bulletin, maybe on the front or on the back, write down, if you would, a person or persons to whom you think God is calling you to be salt, calling you to stop decay and add flavor to their lives, leaving them wanting more because of the way you love Jesus. Now, as we go through the book of Joshua, it's going to be nice because we're going to go one chapter at a time. So it'll be easy to follow, it'll be easy to read ahead of time, keep up with. All right, so in each week we're going to trust that God is going to further equip our toolbox with something new to help us in this mission to be salt. And I, without reservation this morning, encourage you to take notes. Because there is like a four or five course meal to digest in one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, Joshua chapter 1. The coach. Everyone who's ever played a sport, especially when they were young, has had that one memorable coach. You know what I'm talking about? One who kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, stands out. Uh, anyone here had the coach who possessed that charming habit of publicly humiliating his players? Anyone ever have that coach? Raise your hand. Let's get participatory, okay. A few of us. Uh, who here has had that over-the-top, obsessed coach? The kind that would diagram plays for five-year-olds. 
You know, anyone had that coach? Yeah, the, yeah, okay. Sometimes it's the same coach. What about the completely out of touch coach? Anyone have this coach? Means well, very kind of completely out of touch with the people he's coaching. Uh, it's the kind of coach that made references to no bringing your Duran Duran cassette tapes to games, you know, and referring to what it was like to watch Roger Bannister run. Regardless, I hope at some point you had a coach who actually coached, you know, exhorting you to a higher goal or teaching you immeasurable steps how to have success. Mine was Coach Hamilton. He was uh, my freshman year or year nine basketball coach. Short, stocky man, white hair, kind of had a unibrow working. No one had the guts to tell him. But anyway, now he did publicly humiliate me by assigning me the nickname Hollywood. All right, during one special practice, which, by the way, in any male locker room uh, is among the worst nicknames to possess. All right, you, it's not really well respected when you're called Hollywood in a locker room, all right, like the freak or T-bone. Like those are good nicknames to have, but... Hollywood, not so much. But he would tell us before every practice, listen to what I say, trust your teammates, and remember, if you ain't on time, we will start without you. Which was his way of saying, you're going to run laps and miss out on all the strategy we're going to work on for the game. Which usually meant you weren't starting for the game and other, other consequences. It's the same kind of message that the supreme life coach gives Joshua here in chapter 1. As Joshua gets ready to embark on his mission to occupy a new but daunting land of big cities filled with lots of people who seem to be familiar with the ancient version of anabolic steroids, God coaches him up. Now where do I see that in this passage? Friends, where do I see this here? Whenever we sit down to read the Bible, I want to encourage you to do so. When you read the Bible, kind of a side note here, when you read the Bible, do so with a pen or pencil in hand and take note of the repetition, repetitions you see of themes, of, uh, of images, of words, of phrases, as this will often lead you to the main point of the story or the passage as the author intends it to be. The author is repeating these things because he means you to see this is the main point of what he's trying to get across. And this is pretty cool this morning because I did not plan this with my brother my Rob here. Rob was our scripture reader this morning. Really didn't plan this at all. But he clearly did this. He took note of the main repeated phrase throughout Joshua 1. It was a point I want to make this morning and he, he did it. Because that phrase is be strong and courageous. That was such a cool God thing right there. Be strong and courageous. Four times we see it, as he mentioned. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, and verse 18. If you take a step back and you consider just the tone of this phrase, and consider it along with some of the surrounding phrases, right? Every, Every place you step on will be yours. All right? No one will be able to stand before you. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. The whole tone of the passage is that of a coach, right? Exhorting 
motivating, encouraging his player. You can do this. Is this because the whole mission hinges on Joshua? Is God kind of up there knowing, man, if if Joshua doesn't get this done, I can't give him this land. Not at all. Not at all. If Joshua would have failed to trust God's promises, if Joshua would have failed on this mission God had assigned him, God would still have delivered this land to his people because it was his promised land. And God does not fail on his promises. He delivers. But God loved Joshua. He wanted Joshua to grow and trust get to experience his presence, get to be used as a divine instrument through whom God worked. And the best part, to get to participate in a God-sized mission and then witness God-sized glory that would result. You know what I'm saying? We can do little missions. We can do things we know God kind of approves of. When you do and participate in a God-sized mission, the payoff is you get to see that God-sized glory that often results. And he wants Joshua to experience this. He loves Joshua. So with respect to God's mission, and this is key, folks, Joshua doesn't have to. He gets to. Do you understand the difference there? In fact, the sermon, sort of in a nutshell this morning, is this. God's mission is a get-to, and he is a coach that gets you. All right, first, God's mission is a get-to, because we're told at the end of Ephesians 2, God is adding people to his church, and so he is building them into a dwelling place for him. Whether you and I choose to sit on the sidelines or not, He is doing the work. He will fulfill the work. Jesus says that the church will last. Not even the gates of hell can overcome it. And neither will our indifference to his mission. God makes his kingdom grow day and night. Whether a human being even gets out of bed, we're told in Mark chapter 4. If we choose to take our gift and go home, the gift God meant to build the church. Jesus says in Matthew 25, that gift will be taken and given to one who does want to join in on God's mission. In other words, you can hold back your gift. You can sleep. You can sit on the sidelines. But God's going to fulfill his mission. Like my coach said, the game is starting with or without you. God will draw people to himself through the salty living of his saints and so build his church. But he's inviting you and I to join in. 
to get to grow in trust, to get to be used by him, to get to participate in a God-sized mission. And so get to witness a God-sized glory that will result in him coming through. So God's mission is a get-to, but he's also a coach who gets you. He understands what you need in this mission. I love how Psalm 103 puts it that he knows that we are but dust. He understands that we're people. We're not like, we're weak. We struggle. We have a hard time following through. God knows exactly what you need to join in his mission and last in his mission. And we see this in Joshua. He is a coach who gives Joshua words, teammates, and finally himself in order to stay on mission. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, words. God gives Joshua words. On any worthwhile God-sized mission, you're going to experience discouragement, loneliness, doubt, anxiety. There's something about a true, well-timed word that acts like a balm to our wounds. You know what I'm saying? Proverbs 12.25 puts it this way. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. But a good word makes him glad. Isn't that true? Paul says in Acts 20 that the word of grace is able to build people up. It's able to strengthen you. It's able to build people up and give them an inheritance. That's what God's word does. God gives life-building words to Joshua in the form of promises. We see here, and in the form of commands. All right, so in verse 3, read with that with me if you would. Every place, God says to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. In fact, verses 3 through 5 here are nearly an exact replica of God's word to his people in Deuteronomy 11, 24 and 25. In other words, God is just repeating a promise. Remember, I promised you that before. I'm repeating it again. I want to encourage you. What I said before to God's people, it's still true today. And then we get verses 7 through 8. Let's read down here. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that You may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. You might be careful to do everything written in it. For then, as a different translation says, you will be prosperous and successful. I want to focus here on verse 8. Great verse to memorize, by the way. The coach's word can sustain you on mission if you use them in two specific ways. Meditate on them and do them. Because you're on mission. As your blood, sweat, and tears are poured into what God has called you to, His words can sustain you on that mission as you meditate on them and you do them. First, let's focus on meditate on them day and night. Meditation. Man, how do we get here? How do we get? To, how does this sneak into the Bible, right? 
We just WWJD into a yoga class all of a sudden. Is this what happened in the Bible? But the emptying of one's mind and practicing visualization is not the kind of meditation Yahweh is talking about here. That's not what's going on. Old Testament meditation had to do with a focus on God himself, specifically through saying his word out loud. This is actually something new I learned this week. I I kind of read some stuff on this and realized that this was the case. Because if you read some literature back in Old Testament times, and even up in the ancient Christian literature through the time of about St. Augustine, you see hints that reading out loud was the norm. While silently reading would actually be noted because it was abnormal. So you read in the literature, people say, well, he was, he was not speaking. He was not moving his lips, which was seen as abnormal. Isn't that weird today? I mean, you don't get a lot of people talking out loud unless they have, you know, have one of those earpieces on and you think they're crazy. They're on their cell phone, right? But back then, people would read out loud. And I want to encourage you to try it this week. I did this last week. Pick, pick up your Bible and read it aloud. And as you read, especially his promises, who he says he is, who he says you are because of him, uh, what Jesus has done for us through the cross, and what Jesus calls us to do as a response for what he's done for us on the cross, it cements his word into our hearts, into our minds, into our very being. It takes it and cements it, just just saying it out loud. I'm just telling you, there's something about saying it out loud. I can recall what time of day it was, where I was when I said it. In other words, there's something about it that makes it more real. And that's what's being talked about here. Meditate on it day and night. I encourage you to do that as you read God's Word. Try it this week. But also do the word. Meditate on it and then do it. In fact, saying it out loud will help you do it. It will help bring it to mind to do it. The best way to prepare for big missions are little mundane missions that we do along the way, that we do from moment to moment. The big mission for Joshua was to take possession of this massive land, which would require some military might in order to evict the people's from the place they currently call home. But instead of plotting military strategy, instead of God motivating, oh, Joshua, i got a great plan. Let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to ambush them. You're going to flank around behind them and get your forces together. Instead, God tells Joshua to strategize for daily mundane obedience. Like Joshua, nobody's life is filled with everyday fireworks. If you can't joyfully do the little missions for God, you're never going to find lasting, sustaining joy in his big mission. In fact, it's those little missions every day that carry us, that propel us into his big mission, that prepare us, and in fact end up being his big mission. And the Bible says, if you meditate on his word, if you do his word, then you will be prosperous and successful. Let me talk about this phrase for a moment. This phrase has often been misused. What does it mean If you do God's word, you're going to be prosperous. You're going to be successful. In the Old Testament, this almost never refers to financial prosperity. 
It's spoken in situations like the prosperous success given to Abraham's servant and his mission to find a wife for Isaac in Genesis 24. Joseph's success and prosperity in Potiphar's household is given as he faithfully used the gift God gave him. We're told in Genesis 39. The Messiah himself, when he was bruised, nevertheless would cause God's will to, quote-unquote, prosper, Isaiah 53.10. If you might notice a trend here, prosperity and success typically refer to richness in the mission God has assigned. Richness in the mission for Abraham's servant, for Joseph, for the Messiah. There is a muchness to the mission. In other words, when you meditate and do God's word, he causes a muchness, an abundance in the mission itself to overflow. More opportunities, more fruit, and more joy in the mission itself. Does that make sense? That's a wonderful feeling. So God gives you words. You're a good coach. He also tends to give you teammates. And if you notice, I said tends to. That's very important. This leads to another important lesson when reading and applying the Bible. Kind of a side note, but an important side note. When you're reading narrative literature, what's known as narrative literature or story, which Joshua is here, especially when reading the Old Testament, ask the question, is there a corresponding New Testament principle? I'm reading the Old Testament I think I'm reading this. Is this a promise for my life? Like, can I just take hold of this and apply it directly for my life? We have to ask the question, is there something in the New Testament that says, yeah, this is true? Yeah, this is the case. It's an important question to ask. It's called Scripture interpreting Scripture. Letting Scripture help interpreting other Scripture you're reading. To make sure you apply it in the right way. What we see in the New Testament is that God nearly always sends people in teams. So Jesus sends out his disciples two by two to heal others and cast out demons. All right, after his resurrection, the apostles are sent out to share with others the good news about Jesus, usually two by two. All right, so he gives teammates, but... It is not a promise. There is not a promise that as you do God's mission, he will provide you with a teammate for the journey. Sometimes it is lonely. Occasionally, it is very lonely, God's mission. There's not a teammate. There's no promise that says, I'm going to promise you these people are going to walk with you every step of the journey. There's not that. However, he nearly always does. He tends to do so. And the biggest reason is that's who he is. That's part of his character. He is a triune God. You have heard of it as the Trinity. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons, one substance. He is a relational God. So each member of the Trinity is always glorifying each other, honoring each other as teammates. And so... He asks us to model that character. Here in Joshua, we see God give Joshua teammates. Teammates to coach, teammates to hold accountable. Teammates to join with him on mission through prayer and through encouragement. So first we see 
he gives Joshua teammates to coach. The best coaches so deeply impart their plan and their principles that a certain player usually becomes like a coach on the field. Usually that's a, a captain of a team. And we see that here in Joshua. Joshua kind of becomes a mini coach. Verse 10, Joshua commanded the officers of the people, okay, pass through the midst of the camp. Command the people. Prepare provisions. For within three days you were to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you to possess. In other words, he's saying, go ahead and plan according to God's promises. I'm going to coach you. I'm going to encourage you. He gives his teammates to coach. He gives his teammates to hold one another accountable. This is an interesting little section here, verses uh, 12 uh, through 15. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua says, Hey, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, God's giving you this land as a place to rest, and I'll give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in this land. And Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, in other words, to the east of the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you, all basically the men who can fight, shall pass over the Jordan armed with your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives you rest. See, these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they had a lot of livestock. That was kind of their deal. It was difficult moving around. You had a lot of livestock with you. You can understand. Sheep, goats, it's difficult. It's tiring. And as they get near the Jordan River, they're still in the time of water, but they're getting near the Jordan River. They see this land. They think, man, there's still a long way to go. We've got to go over the Jordan. We've got to go into the promised land. So they see this land to the east of the Jordan. And they ask Moses if it's okay if they just occupy this land. As you see up here, it's kind of the gray area. Let's, can we just occupy this land instead of crossing over into the Jordan and occupying land there? Just for our, can you give us this land? Is that okay? Can we work out something here, Moses? Kind of a deal. It's available. It's unoccupied. It saves them a lot of trouble, they reason. You can read about this in Numbers 32. Well, Moses is hot about this. He's not pleased. So, they agree that the men won't stop there. They'll leave the livestock, the women, and the children behind, but the men won't stop. Once they're ready to cross over the Jordan, the men will go with the rest of the men to help fight and occupy the land. That's, that's the deal. Right, yeah, you can have this land. It's unoccupied, but you're going to have to go with us to you know, occupy the rest. Ever make a commitment? Have you ever made a commitment that's weak enough, inconsequential enough, that when the time comes to hold up your end, you're pretty confident all parties involved will relent and admit it's probably not worth it. Ever made that kind of commitment where you're kind of like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit this. I'm going to promise this. I know when the time comes, everyone will pretty much be tired by then. That's the potential here. That's the potential for what might be happening. Get there, look, it's been a long journey. We're finally here. You guys could probably handle this. God's promised it. Let's, we'll just stay here, right? But Joshua simply brings up the matter. And in doing so, he holds the Reubenites, the Gadites, 
and Manasseh accountable to what they promised. When on a mission, teammates hold one another accountable. It's what they do. You can do this formally. I have a cool little sheet of about 10 questions I've used with other brothers to hold one another accountable. But accountability doesn't have to be formal or, or even heavy-handed. I know when you hear that word, you think accountability. Some of you are lawyers. You're thinking, oh, wow, you know, like contracts and lawsuits. and litig- I mean, like it's very heavy-handed. It might just be following up on a prayer request that someone gave the previous week at community group. Right? Someone prayed, like, you know, I'm trying to share Christ with this person. Will you pray for me? The next week you just ask them how it went or how's that going? It might simply be asking how something went or how something is going. See what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be heavy-handed to hold someone accountable. Remember, accountability isn't primarily for you and the other person to enter into this vulnerability. Just let me share all my weaknesses and sorrows with you so we can become closer. Accountability is primarily for them and Jesus. To hold them accountable to Jesus. Also, he tends to give teammates to join with us. To join with, pray for, to encourage you on God's mission. We see this in verses 16 through 18. All right, these are some great words. They answered Joshua. Here's their response. All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. So they have joined in with Moses. And they say, only, you know what? May the Lord your God be with you, Joshua, as he was with Moses. So they essentially pray for Joseph. They pray this blessing over Joseph. May he be with you, Joseph, just as he was with Moses. And then they encourage him, right? Joshua, be strong. Be courageous. So he's a coach who gets you. He gets that you need teammates. He also gets that you need himself. And God gives you himself for any mission. Of all the comforts and encouragements, there was none more meaningful than what God says here in verse 5. Look at that with me. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's repeated two more times here in this passage in some form. Now, as Moses' assistant, which he's called right here in verse 1, and he's called earlier in Deuteronomy and elsewhere, Joshua witnessed most of Moses' actions, his decisions firsthand. Many of them were unpopular with the people. All right, Moses was a terrible politician. He, he did things that were extremely unpopular in the polls. All right? Some requiring what was humanly impossible. But I think what must have impressed Joshua the most was God's presence with Moses. Read with me. Exodus 33, 7 through 11. This is where things get really cool. All right. Now Moses used to make the tent and pitch it outside the camp. This was a giant tent, by the way. We're talking like carnival, wedding reception kind of tent. All right. Big time. Moses used to make the tent and pitched it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting, meeting with God. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. 
Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. Each would stand at his own tent door, like his own little mini tent that he and his family would sleep in. And they would watch Moses until he had gone into the big tent. Now, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. That's the presence of God. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of this tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his door. I mean, they would just see God descending on this tent to speak with Moses. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, verse 11 tells us, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now there's a lot of interesting things here. It's pretty amazing. God had this presence with Moses. Moses was on this hard mission. I want to pay, pay attention to this last little phrase. When Moses left, Joshua lingered. It's easy to just bypass that when you're reading Exodus, but when Moses left, Joshua lingered in the tent, in God's presence, I think to see, to experience for himself the strength, the presence that helped Moses face the people and lead them each new day. Joshua saw and felt with Moses the rebellious hearts of the people he led who would fight Moses on every inch. And we know if you read the Bible, they would fight him every inch. They would complain, grumble, but Moses, but Moses, but Moses. Where does his power come from? Where does this authority come from to keep leading these people? He knew in that tent where God was with Moses. How can we know that God is with us? And here's the cool part here. Jesus puts us in the tent forever. Jesus Christ puts us in the tent, in the presence of God forever. Now get ready for your mind to explode. It's pretty cool. Jesus Christ, the real human Jesus Christ, historically, died when he was crucified. He died just outside the city gates of Jerusalem. All right, did you know this? So here's a picture of Jerusalem, the walls. And he died outside of this gate. It was called the Genoff Gate. And there's Golgotha on this hill. Did you know this? You know why that's important? In Moses' time, outside the camp is where the presence of God dwelt. In the tent, as we read a moment ago, it was outside the camp. Because the people, they were unholy, they were imperfect, they were sinful, and God is not. He is holy, He is perfect, you couldn't be around that. God couldn't dwell right in the midst of His people. So Moses went outside the camp. And so we read that he spoke to God face to face. And then what did he do? He turned again into the camp. Jesus goes outside the gate. Jesus goes outside the camp. 
to endure God and all his perfection and all his justice. He takes that upon him so that you and I could forever experience his loving and glorious presence. Check out the connection here, how the author of Hebrews makes this connection. Hebrews 13, 12 through 14. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. See, this is blowing your mind, right? All right. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So there's two parts here, right, in this verse that are important for us this morning. Jesus died to make us perfect in God's eyes. Jesus died to make us perfect in God's eyes so we could ever be in the tent in his presence. Number two, Jesus asked us to join him outside the camp. Who did you write down in your sheet earlier? To be salt to. Who's your mission? Because God's mission will require reproach. It will require going outside your comfort zone, outside the camp. Outside the camp, friends, is uncomfortable. But there is Jesus. There will we find something lasting that goes way beyond now and way beyond us. If you're unsure to whom God has asked you to be salt, or maybe you're like 50% sure, you just wrote down a name, I want to ask you to join with our church on a mission. Almost two years ago, I started to ask two questions. If Sunrise Community Church were to cease tomorrow, would anyone in our community notice? And at the time, and some extent now, the answer is still no. We would notice. The people who are part of the church, would the community notice? Second question was, how then can we best love our community by loving the least in it? Because Matthew 25 is pretty clear. When Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Because the king will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these you did to me. So I spoke with community leaders. Where are the least? Or where are people perceived as the least? Where, and the overwhelming verdict was that the greatest need in the community was investing in primary age students who are at risk long term for dysfunction, for incarceration. Kids that have mostly been given up on. And have been falling through the cracks. And the best way to be proactive isn't loving these kids when they're 20 or 30, but when they're still kids. When they still need mentors and direction and encouragement. Across the board, leaders have been telling me this. I've been asking the questions. I spoke with Michael Miles of the Ministry of Education specifically. And he came up with a before and after school, sort of adopt-a-school program called uh, It Takes a Village. 
provides a holistic approach to mentoring young people at risk through cultural education, culinary arts, uh, music, sports, making sure kids get good meals, you name it. Uh, 30 plus children and a few staff. And we adopted Georgetown Primary about this time a year ago. Not surprisingly, and it takes a village mantra, there were plenty of people willing to give money. Because it's easy, it's, I appreciate people give money to finance it, but few were willing to volunteer time. Enter Sunrise Community Church. Volunteers giving an hour or two each week or every other week to love these kids. We can't do everything as a church. We could be salt to these kids and to the school, to those perceived as the least. And while I know myself and others began to see fruit working with these kids over this last year, there were a lot of frustrations. There was sporadic appreciation. There was inconsistent organization. As, frankly, you know, happens with a government-run program. I'm not picking on the camp. Any government-run program, these things happen in any country. And honestly, this summer, this last year, we numbers dwindled and dwindled. And we prayed hard. God, are you still calling us to this? Outreach coordinator Terry Howard and I prayed long and hard about this. I came back to Matthew 25. Jesus is there with the least of these. It's likely inconvenient. It's certainly uncomfortable. But there is Jesus outside the camp. Let's pray. Jesus This is such a great passage of Scripture. It's meaty, full of a lot of stuff. We thank you that you let us get to participate in your mission to be salt to a decaying and flavorless world around us. Father, we're grateful that you're like a coach with us because you know us, you get us. You know that we need encouraging words. You know that we need teammates. We know, you know that we need you with us on a God-sized mission. God, encourage our hearts. Help us take that, take that next step to go on a God-sized mission. Not a mission that we can just plan by ourselves, that we know will work because it's easy, but a God-sized mission. One that will be hard, one that might be difficult, and that's uncomfortable, but there, outside the camp, is Jesus. We get to see your glory as you work. Where if things actually happen, we know it's because of you. And I pray, Lord, specifically this morning, if there are some here who feel like, maybe I could give up some time. I can make a sacrifice, even ask my boss, Crazy this might sound, I know I work in a world where money is everything. I don't know if my boss will understand it. I don't know, you know, is it really worth it to the success of my career to give up a week, uh, an hour or two every week or every other week? Challenge us to take that uncomfortable step. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.